Last week we were discussing the enlightenment factor of concentration and what this quality of mind is and the role it plays on the path of awakening. So tonight I'd like to continue this discussion in, in a particularly pragmatic way of how we can cultivate concentration in our practice and in our lives. Is it actually possible to develop sufficient steadiness and undistractedness of mind for awakening, for the realization of Nibbana? What is so powerful about the Buddha's teachings is that he lays out the path of practice in a very step-by-step way. He doesn't just talk about the ultimate destination, he actually tells us how to get there. So the first step in developing concentration, this enlightenment factor of samadhi, is establishing or strengthening the confidence that we can do it. Although some very few people, people perhaps like Deepama, have a naturally concentrated mind. You know, they sit down and very easily they enter into the state of samadhi. For most of us, it's a question of patience and perseverance, really taking one step at a time in its development. And as we do this, if we can practice <clears throat> in this way, then the factors of concentration, the other factors of awakening, of wisdom, gradually develop and are cultivated. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha gave some both general and specific instructions for how to develop the awakening factor of concentration. <clears throat> he said, if the concentration awakening factor is present, one knows there is the concentration awakening factor present in me. If it is not present, one knows. It is not present in me. One knows how the unarisen concentration factor can arise and how the arisen concentration factor can be perfected by development. So we begin by simply being mindful in our practice is concentration present or not present? You might notice that the Buddha did not say anything at all about judging oneself or judging the practice. Rather, it's simple, it's the simple, clear discernment of the present condition of mind. We are mindful, is concentration present? Is it not present? Then, based on that assessment, we can practice arousing samadhi, one-pointedness, if it is not present, and we can develop it and cultivate it further if it is. So how do we arouse it? How do we develop it? In many places in the suttas, 
the Buddha taught that the foundation for concentration is sila, or morality. He said that if there is no virtue in our lives, the basis for concentration is destroyed. So we might hear this, and we probably have heard this many times, that sila, morality, virtue, is the basis for concentration. We hear this and reflect that we're basically virtuous, moral people, that we more or less follow the precepts in our lives. And then we might quickly move on to great visions of mental absorption and supernormal powers and full enlightenment. Yeah, I've taken care of the sila part. Now all the rest will just follow. But I think it's helpful to examine a little more fully how all this works. Why is morality the basis for concentration? To really investigate this in our lives, because that's what gives it strength. That's what gives it power. As I mentioned in some earlier talks, sila or morality, in a very obvious way, is the basis for non-remorse. If we're not doing unskillful things, we're not going to feel remorse about them. So sila is the cause for non-remorse. Non-remorse is the cause for happiness. Happiness is the cause for concentration and concentration for liberating wisdom. So we can just see this chain of dependent arising play out in our lives and the opposite, how lack of sila causes remorse and regret and guilt and other unwholesome factors. So we can see this very directly in our own meditation experience. This is not just a theoretical progression. We've seen it many times in our own practice. Very commonly we're sitting or walking and past memories start to arise. Past memories of wholesome actions, past memories of unwholesome actions. The former, the skillful ones, when we think of them, when we remember, we know that they bring about a feeling of ease, a feeling of confidence. And when the unskillful memories, memories of unskillful actions arise, we do feel regret or remorse or sometimes guilt. You know, a story which I've told many times over the years, but it's a very striking example of this, uh, was when I was sitting in India and my practice was uh, getting somewhat deeper and the concentration was improving. And then this memory came back of my Peace Corps training and how as part of the training um, we were killing chickens. And at that time, under the power, the great power of delusion, I had the thought, well, I'm a man. This is something I ought to be able to do. You know, and so there was a kind of almost pride right, in my undertaking this task. And I had a picture of me. You know, somebody, somebody took this picture of you know, holding the chicken and then, shh, 
chopping its head off. And I had this big smile on my face, as if I had just done something noble. Well, years later in India, I'm sitting and practicing, and all of this comes back to mind. And of course, with the clarity of mindfulness, I saw how deluded I had been, and a tremendous amount of remorse overcame my mind. And it filled my mind for days. I kept reliving this scene and this picture. And of course, the concentration was completely gone as I was just getting lost again and again in reliving this memory. And just as a little side note, one of the most extraordinary karmic concurrences was just on the day that these memories reached their peak in my mind. You know, every evening I was at the Burmese Vihar in Bodhgaya. They would serve just some tea and a boiled egg. And just on that day, for the one and only time in my life, I opened, cracked open the egg, and there was a little embryo chicken in it. I was just amazing. A lot of remorse, a lot of regret, you know, and it really filled my mind until, through the power of mindfulness, you know, it began to work out. And it works the other way too, you know, when we think of some really good thing we've done, maybe some acts of real kindness or generosity, and they come up to the mind in practice. You know, how do you feel? How do you feel when that memory comes? The heart is gladdened. We really, there's a kind of lightness and an ease and a confidence that comes. And so then we can see for ourselves this whole chain of progression. You know, how sila leads to non-remorse, non-remorse to happiness, happiness to concentration. Now the power of sila the power of having committed to the precepts is that once we've committed to them, even when we do have the un- memories of unskillful, unwholesome things arise in the mind, the power of our present commitment to sila gives us the strength, it gives us the stability to actually be with these memories in a way that purifies them and purifies our mind. We can be with them in a mindful way, understand them, feel the remorse about them, and let them go. If we're not established in sila, if we're continuing to live in a way that's unskillful, unwholesome, then these thoughts continue to arise in the mind. They continue to plague the mind. And we find that there's no way, actually, to have the mind settled and become concentrated. The example Munindraji, my first teacher, gave a very good example. He said, to practice meditation without this establishment <coughs> in virtue, which again, it doesn't mean that we haven't committed many unskillful acts in the past, it means from now we are established. From now we are committed to non-harming. 
if that's not present, practicing meditation is like trying to row a boat across the river without untying it from the dock. We can put all this effort into it and we don't go anyplace. This is the importance the Buddha placed, <coughs> the value he placed you know, on the power of sila in the development of our practice. So sila is the condition for concentration to arise. So once we're established in this, and I think we all are, you know, we have that commitment to non-harming in our lives, then we can employ different methods and different techniques specifically for strengthening and developing this enlightenment factor of concentration. And one of the most basic and easily applied methods which the Buddha talked about often, is mindfulness of breathing. You know, the breath is always with us. It's not that we have to go searching for it or find something that's not there. If we're alive, we're breathing. Not only is it always there, the breath is an interesting object because it's intimately connected with our whole energy system and with the state of our mind. So there's a powerful interface between the breath and our minds. Last week I spoke of four steps that the Buddha outlined in the Satipatthana Sutta, this discourse that we've been discussing. He outlined four steps of how to work with the breath, of how to to apply mindfulness of breathing. And I'd like to review them and elaborate a bit on each of these steps as a way of understanding what tools we can use in our practice in refining samadhi, in refining this enlightenment factor. So the first instruction the Buddha gave, if you remember, is very simple. He said, breathing in, one knows I'm breathing in. Breathing out, one knows I'm breathing out. This is the simplest and most basic meditation instruction. We sit, breathing in, know you're breathing in. Breathing out, know you're breathing out. But of course, our minds being what they are, we complicate things. And different teachers tend to complicate things. Because as you know, different teachers have very different suggestions for where to feel a breath, how to feel a breath. Some say, keep the attention at the tip of the nose or just the sensation of the air as it touches the upper lip. Some teachers say to observe it, the rising falling of the abdomen. Others say to feel the breath wherever you feel it in the body, and not necessarily to fix it at any one place. So my suggestion is just to see for yourself 
where the mind naturally settles. Take the Buddha's general instruction, breathing in, know you're breathing in. Breathing out, know you're breathing out. And then see for yourself in your own experience, where do you feel it? Does the mind settle just in one place? Fine, be there. Does the mind stay open to different places where you're feeling the breath arise? Fine, be with that. We can really learn to trust our own experience in following these instructions because this first step is exceedingly simple. Breathing in, I know I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I know I'm breathing out. After some time, though, as we do this, it's not unusual for the mind to get a little bored. Breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. You know, it just seems endless. And the mind becomes somewhat disinterested. So the Buddha, knowing that this was likely to happen, went on to give a slightly more detailed instruction in the second step. He said, breathing in long, one knows I'm breathing in long. Breathing in short, one knows I'm breathing in short. So to know this, to be aware whether it's a long breath or a short breath, already requires a little more careful attention. If we're casual in our attention on the breath, we won't know this. We won't know. Is it long? Is it short? And then we can take this instruction even a little further. We could inquire or investigate, well, which is longer, the in-breath or the out-breath? You know, so we just look. We're, we're looking, we're observing a little more carefully. And then perhaps notice whether there's a pause between breaths. And then looking even a little more carefully, which pause is longer? Is the pause longer between the out and the next in? Or between the in-breath and the out-breath? All of this is requiring us to pay a caring attention. Right, so we're coming in close to the experience, and this is part of the training, the gradual training in deepening and strengthening concentration. But as we do this, a certain care is needed to still allow the breath to be just as it is. We don't want to interpret a close and caring attention to mean a forcing or a struggling with it or a trying to make something happen. We're not trying to make it long or trying to make it short or trying to have a pause or not have a pause. <coughs> We're simply noticing with a little more refinement how the breath actually presents itself. So at this point, as we're bringing the attention in a little closer, it's very helpful to use the technique which has been mentioned a few times now, 
that even with something as simple as the breath, we ask the question in the mind, well, what's the attitude in my mind as I'm doing this? We ask that question because the question can reveal whether we're striving, whether we're struggling, or whether the mind is simply settled back, relaxed, open, allowing the breath to follow its own rhythm. So use that question. What's the attitude now? Even with the simplicity of these instructions on the breath, it's very helpful. It helps settle us back and simply allow the breath to be as it is. If we ask the question, what's the attitude in my mind as I'm feeling the breath, and we notice that we're struggling, that there's a wanting in the mind or a dissatisfaction in the mind, then it can be helpful to back off from an exclusive attention on the breath and just give the mind a larger scope. Maybe be aware of the whole body or be aware of sound, open to listening, And that allows the breath to again find its own natural rhythm. Okay, in this development, gradual step-by-step development of concentration, this factor of enlightenment, we start breathing in, I know I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I know I'm breathing out. Breathing in long, I know it's long. Breathing in short, I know it's short. Coming in a little closer. The third step in the training is really a powerful uh, element in strengthening the factor of one-pointedness. And here the Buddha says, I shall breathe in, experiencing the whole body. I shall breathe out, experiencing the whole body. And as I mentioned before, This could mean either the whole breath body, that is, the body of the breath from beginning, middle, and end, or it could be interpreted as the breath, feel the breath in the whole body, throughout the body. And different teachers interpret this differently. You can experiment for yourself. The point of this step and it's a really critical one in the development of samadhi, is that it encourages us to make the attention continuous. Because you may have noticed, as you meditate, that the mind has a tendency, oh, we're with the breath, and we kind of connect with it for some moments of it, and then the mind goes off someplace, and maybe it picks up the tail end of the breath, and then on the out-breath, and then... We're with it for a few moments and the mind goes off and then we pick it up again. The Buddha here is saying, keep the attention continuous, breathing in, feeling the whole body, experiencing the breath, the whole body of the breath or the breath in the whole body. You know? And so we're really working at this very smooth, easy, continuity of attention.
as we train in this step, it can be helpful to just inquire or investigate a bit. Well, as I'm with the whole breath, where in the cycle of the breath does my mind tend to wander? Does it wander more on the in or more on the out? Does it tend to go off more at the beginning of the breath or more at the end? Does it tend to wander in the pause? So we're just looking. We're we're learning about our minds. We're learning about the patterns of our minds, the the tendencies uh, that are there. When we recognize where in the breath cycle we are most likely to wander off, (coughs) we can put up a little road sign at that place. The sign can say, observe carefully, mind wandering. You know, it's like, it's just moose crossing. (laughs) It's a reminder to us that at that particular place in the cycle, we just need a little extra care because of the tendency that we might have to go off. So this is how we learn about ourselves, about our minds, and how to train the mind in this factor of concentration. So the fourth step in the training, the Buddha said, I shall breathe in, calming the bodily formations. I shall breathe out, calming the bodily formations. And again, we could understand it as calming the formation of the breath body, just calming the breath, or calming the whole body as we breathe. And experiment both ways to see what's most effective for you. Here we actually can be repeating very softly just a word or a couple of words with each in-breath or each out-breath we might repeat the word or like a whisper in the mind, calm, calming the breath, calming the formations. And then actually noticing the feeling of calming as it arises. I found this last step in the Buddha's instructions, this fourth step of calming the body formations and actually doing it, you know, by using this word, I found it so helpful in my own practice in developing the tranquility factor of mind, which frees us, it frees the mind from wanting, from grasping, from leaning forward. So just experiment as you're breathing, breathing in, calming the breath. Breathing out, calming the breath. And see if you get that sense of simply by reminding ourselves to calm the breath, notice how the whole energy system relaxes back into it, back into a place of calm and tranquility, rather than a reaching out for or looking for something. What's amazing about this and what the Buddha pointed out in the teachings then is that out of this place of calm, of tranquility, 
concentration arises all by itself. We don't have to look for concentration based on effort. We can allow the concentration to arise naturally out of the calm and tranquility of mind. That's why this fourth step in the instruction is so helpful. At this point, as we're watching (coughs) and calming the breath and the bodily formations with each breath, the breathing can become very refined. And an Australian teacher, Ajahn Brahm, who teaches a lot of samadhi practice, he has a beautiful expression for this. He calls it (coughs) observing the beautiful breath. And I really like that phrase because at this place of calm, the breath really is beautiful and we experience it that way. When we're feeling the beautiful breath, the calm breath, based on a growing steadiness, a growing concentration of mind, then the mind (coughs) is naturally inclined to stay with it. At that point, there's no struggle. It's as if the mind is pulled to or drawn into feeling the breath. It wants to be with it because it is the beautiful breath. We're drawn to the beauty. It's important (coughs) to understand that the development of concentration is an art. There are a lot of different factors to balance. And so each one of us has to experiment and find for ourselves just the right balance of investigation and tranquility. We have to experiment and find, well, what's the right method? Which one of these steps needs more cultivation? So we want to be with our experience and learn from it and experiment and see, well, what best serves the practice? So we work through these four steps. Having now established a certain level of stability of mind, a certain level of concentration. We can then take another step in developing concentration and wisdom. And it's an instruction that was described very clearly by an unusual Thai teacher named Upasaka Ki. Opasaka Ki was born in Thailand in 1901, and she was largely self-taught. And she became one of the foremost Dharma teachers in Thailand. And this is quite remarkable given Thai Buddhist culture, both for a woman to have that level of attainment and renown, in teaching the Dharma, and also a laywoman. She wasn't a monastic. 
And yet in the course of her life, her teaching was so powerful and so incisive and so clear and so precise about what is needed to liberate the mind. Um, she became this, <laughs> this very well-known and respected and powerful teachings, teachers. And her teachings are collected in a wonderful book uh, which has been translated into English called Pure and Simple. And I would recommend you read it because it's really quite an extraordinary Dharma book. So in this particular teaching, she's leading us from the awareness of the breath to the awareness of the knowing mind. So I want to read just a little bit uh, from her teachings in this book. We gather our awareness at any one point of the breath and keep this up until the mind settles down and is still. When the mind is still, you then focus on the stillness of the mind at the same time you're aware of the breath. At this point, you don't focus directly on the breath. You focus on the mind that is still and at normalcy. You focus continuously on the normalcy of the mind at the same time that you're aware of the breath coming in and out, without actually focusing on the breath. You simply stay with the mind, but you watch it with each in and out breath. Usually when you are doing physical work and your mind is at normalcy, you can know what you're doing. So why can't you be aware of the breath? After all, it's part of the body. This is when you focus on the mind instead of the breath. Let go of the breath and focus on the mind, but still be aware of the breath on the side. You don't have to make note now of how long or short the breath is. Simply make note of the mind that stays at normalcy with each in and out breath. I'm not sure what the Thai word is, but I very much like the translation normalcy because it points to something that's very helpful for us in our practice. This training recognizes the normalcy, or we could say the ordinariness, of the knowing mind. With each breath, now we're focusing just on the mind knowing it. The breath is still there, as she says, on the side, So we're not ignoring the breath. It's there on the side, but we're focusing on the knowing of it, this normalcy of mind. We we might call it just the ordinary awareness. It's not some subtle far-off state. It's what's right here, right now, with each breath. One simply knows the breath and stays with the experience of the knowing So we practice in this way. And as we learn 
both to recognize and trust this simplicity of knowing, we can stabilize our awareness in the knowing itself. So it's as if that's what becomes our base. Home base is the knowing. And then we can more easily integrate this in a seamless way in all the activities through the day. Because we're simply resting in the knowing of whatever arises. We started out the knowing of the breath, because it's very simple, it's very basic, it's right there. And we've trained ourselves to go from the focus on the breath itself to a focus or a resting in the knowing. And then we apply that, we open that to every experience that arises throughout the day. Now this move, we could say from object of attention to the knowing mind, it was expressed in a very uh, incisive way, and in a way that, that kind of can wake us up to the experience by the right away wu way. When he said, what we're looking for is what is looking. Right. So usually in our meditation, it's as if we're looking for the object, you know, whether it's the breath or anything else. In this move from the breath to the knowing, it's realizing what we're looking for is what is looking. And so we simply drop right back into what's already here, the awareness that's already present. So at this point, we can either continue with the knowing of the breath, which is the practice of uh, samatha meditation, you know, which leads to absorption. Or, as we rest in the knowing, we can open up to the whole range of changing experience, which is moving in the direction of vipassana. When we move in the direction of open awareness, resting in the knowing of whatever's arising, we enter into a kind of effortless awareness. And this is what Sayadaw Utejaniya said about this. He said, when mindfulness has gained momentum, we don't need to do anything more. The mind knows what to do. At this stage, there is no more personal effort. You could call it effortless awareness. Only when we don't do anything can we see the non-doing, the non-self. So again, all of this happens through the development of concentration, first on the breath, in the steps I mentioned, then it reaches that very refined state, the beautiful breath. We shift our focus then from the focus on the breath to the focus on the knowing, we learn to recognize it, stabilize the mind in the knowing, open up to the knowing of whatever's arising. This is the experience, and we begin to, to have a very direct experience here of anatta, of selflessness, 
because we see that it's all rolling on by itself. There's no one there doing anything. Now in any discussion of concentration and concentration practice, and even Vipassana practice, one of the most important issues that arises for most meditators is how do we, how do we relate to the many thoughts that arise in the mind? What's the relationship of thought? What's the role of thought or the hindrance of thought in this practice of concentration? Now there are different ways of understanding the role of thought. And it depends in part on what particular practice we're doing. If we're practicing a fixed object concentration for the purpose of developing absorption, then any object other than the designated one is a distraction. And so in that kind of practice, what we do is either ignore anything else that arises and just keep the mind fixed on the designated object, or as soon as we're aware of it, we let it go. We don't give it any special attention. In insight practice, when we're practicing not fixed object concentration, but developing what we have called momentary concentration, which is the one-pointedness on changing objects, and this is the practice we do in Vipassana, there is a very different attitude that we bring to thoughts. And again, Saida Utejaniya has expressed this way of relating to thoughts very, very well. He said, when the mind is thinking or wandering, just be aware of it. Thinking is a natural activity of the mind. You are doing well if you are aware that the mind is thinking. But if you feel disturbed by thoughts, or if you have a reaction or judgment of them, there is a problem with your attitude. The wandering mind is not the problem. Your attitude that they should not be around is the problem. So understand that you have just become aware of some functions of the mind. These two are just objects for your attention. When you feel disturbed by the thinking mind, remind yourself that you are not practicing to prevent thinking, but rather to recognize and acknowledge thinking whenever it arises. If you are not aware, you cannot know that you are thinking. The fact that you recognize that you are thinking means that you are already aware. Remember, it does not matter how many times the mind thinks, wanders off, or gets annoyed about something as long as you become aware of it. So again, in the development of momentary concentration, momentary samadhi, in the progress of vipassana, we don't so much see thoughts as a hindrance or a problem. They are simply something else to be aware of. 
and we want to practice being aware of them as close to the beginning as possible. Our practice with thought can show us very clearly how the different factors of enlightenment all work together in the service of liberation. So we can really use this very common phenomenon of the thinking mind to learn about how our mind works and how the factors of enlightenment join together in the service of freedom. So, for example, it's mindfulness which actually notices that a thought is present. Without mindfulness, we don't know. It's continuity of mindfulness, many moments of mindfulness in a row, that strengthens the steadiness of mind and the factor of concentration. Concentration arises from continuity of mindfulness. So we see how these two factors work together. The second factor of enlightenment, investigation of dhammas, which is the wisdom factor. This wisdom factor explores and understands both whether the thoughts are wholesome or unwholesome, and it also understands their essentially insubstantial nature. So we're using thought not as, not seeing it as a problem, but actually using it as a vehicle for deepening our wisdom, deepening our understanding. (coughs) Now, if we're very mindful, if the mindfulness is strong, as thoughts appear, and we're aware of them just as they appear, and to use the Tibetan phrase, if they appear and then we see how they self-liberate, meaning in the moment of awareness they just disappear, then there's nothing further we need to do. Because at that point we're really seeing their empty, insubstantial, momentary nature. Regardless of what the thought is saying, there's no problem. Thought arises, we're aware, it self-liberates, it's gone. We just go on. However, as we know, our mindfulness is not always that sharp. We don't always see the thought just as it begins. And very often we do get involved with them in one way or another. We get carried away by the story they're telling us. So in this case, it's helpful to look a little more carefully at the content Again, Saidao Utejuni has some good advice here. He says, It does not matter whether thinking stops or not. It is more important that you understand whether your thoughts are skillful or unskillful, appropriate or inappropriate, necessary or unnecessary. So here we're bringing this investigation, this wisdom factor of mind, to really look at the thought with some very probing questions. Is the thought wholesome or not wholesome? Skillful or unskillful? Appropriate or not appropriate? 
The Buddha compared the progressive refinement of the mind to various stages of refining gold. Well, that's, that's a simile that he used at different times. And in this process of refining gold, you go through the process until all the impurities in the gold have been removed. So it's, a, it's instructive to reflect on what the Buddha described as the impurities of mind that get purified as the practice continues. Some of these impurities are obvious, like unskillful wrong actions of body and speech. You know, the breaking of the precepts, harming actions of harm. And also just unwholesome thoughts of greed, you know, or of ill will, or of cruelty. These are obviously impurities of mind. They cause suffering. But then the Buddha spoke of more subtle impurities. And he described these as being lost in worldly thoughts. You know, all the many kinds of thoughts we have of family and friends and of country and of politics and of reputation and of work and just all the kinds of worldly thoughts that we have. Now, obviously, living in the world there are times when we do need to think about these things. But as you know from your experience here in meditation, very often we're simply lost in a reverie about them. We're drifting along in these habits of thought. And they may not be particularly unwholesome, but they are inappropriate and unnecessary for the task at hand. So we want to watch this very common phenomenon of the thinking mind bring the wisdom factor to bear. Do they self-liberate in the moment of awareness? Fine. Nothing more to do. If they don't, and if we find ourselves involved with them, then this further investigation Okay, wholesome or unwholesome. And even if they're not unwholesome, a very liberating question would be, as you're lost in some story, is it necessary? Probably not. You know, most of our thoughts are not necessary at all. And just reminding ourselves of that Bringing that to mind reestablishes ourselves on the path. Then the Buddha talked of an even more subtle level of impurity. And it's one that's very seductive. And this is when we get lost in Dharma thoughts. Thoughts about our practice, thoughts about different meditative states. They're so seductive precisely because they're about the Dharma. So here we are, we're in this you know, wonderful place practicing the Dharma and having these Dharma thoughts. Of course, that's okay. And as with the worldly thoughts, there are times when a conscious, mindful Dharma reflection is very helpful. It actually serves us 
and helps our practice. But when we're simply lost in Dharma reveries, you know, or judgments about our practice, they're not at all helpful. At that level, they are this subtle impurity. So when we become aware of all of these different kinds of thoughts, both the obviously unwholesome, the ones that are not some so unwholesome but just not necessary, and these Dharma thoughts that are not serving us, where we're really just lost in a reverie about them, we can practice understanding them for what they are and letting them go. As we do this, as the mind gets purified in this way, like purifying gold, the mind becomes inwardly steadied, it becomes composed, it becomes unified. This factor of samadhi, this factor of concentration becomes strengthened. It's a quality of concentration that is very calm, that is very refined. It's really achieved deepening levels of mental purification. As with all the factors of awakening, the seven factors of enlightenment, concentration too needs to be developed gradually. The Buddha used the example of the ocean floor gradually sloping away. It's not that we sit down and in one sitting all of a sudden we've attained to the highest levels of samadhi. Rather, it's a gradual development, it's a gradual sloping. Everything is possible if we just proceed with patience, with perseverance, We might take as an example, I love this little story of Pablo Casals, the great cellist. It said that he still practiced three hours a day when he was 93 years old. This was a great master. When he was asked why he still practiced at that age, he said, I'm beginning to see some improvement. So I'd just like to close with a few verses from the Dhammapada, which is a reminder to us, you know, in the Buddha's own words, of the nature of our minds and what we can accomplish. He said, just as an arrowsmith shapes an arrow to perfection, so does the wise person shape the mind, which is fickle, unsteady, vulnerable, and erratic. How good it is to reign the mind, which is unruly, capricious, rushing wherever it pleases. The mind so harnessed will bring one happiness. Your worst enemy cannot harm you (coughs) as much as your own unguarded thoughts. A well-directed mind creates more well-being than even the loving actions of parents towards their children. A wise person should pay attention to the mind, which is difficult to perceive. It is extremely subtle and wanders wherever it pleases. 
The mind well guarded and trained will bring one happiness. Let's sit for just a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.